We're going to be in James, the end part of four, the first part of five. And if you don't have Bibles, there's four on the table right there. You can grab that. You can use it. And if you need a Bible, you can keep it. Um, Otherwise, just follow along. If you could all stand for the reading of God's Word, you show it the respect that it deserves. So, James 4, and we're going to start in verse 13. It says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town, and spend a year there, and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Chapter 5. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you, and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by, by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts for a day in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous man. Verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth, or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it may not rain, that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. And then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. These are the words of the Lord. 
Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask for your presence in this room. We ask that your word would go forth and achieve the the goal that you have designed it to achieve in each of our hearts here, Holy Spirit. I pray that you would change us as uh, your word changes people. And we're thankful, Lord, to be able to have your word in our hands. It's a great and beautiful gift. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. All right. So we're going to cover the last part of uh, chapter 4 and the first part of chapter 5. And so in, kin- in continuing the instruction on what a life of working faith should look like, he, he completes, he continues this like, as I've said before, I've called it the faith troubleshooting manual. And so there's, we've got a couple things happening today. There's going to be a reminder to reign in our pride uh, of boasting and making plans outside of God's will. And then he's going to switch over to what's essentially a... Uh, <clears throat> a very strong rebuke, rebuke on those who are wealthy, those specifically the evil wealthy who are persecuting the believers. Um, and what the book, while this whole book was written to the brothers, uh, the faithful believers, in other words, James uses he just uses his valuable parchment space to take out some time to just haul the these rich people to the woodshed and, and just whack them. And uh, he does that in light of like here's here's your letter. I'm going to do this, and you guys are going to read it. And so. <clears throat> He, he, it's a legit whooping on these guys, on these people that were persecuting the believers. And then he switches over, and with justice promised on the, the evil, the believers um, that he writes to are, are urged to endure and to be steadfast in their trials with their faith working out in prayer, singing righteousness, and bringing in the stragglers. So, it's good stuff. You guys all been enjoying this book of James? It's incredible. Once you dig into it, it's really something. And I'm telling you, it'll change you. It will change you when you learn what faith is and apply it to your lives. So in 4.13, you guys read, look at your Bibles. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. 4.13. Um, and so this reminds us of uh, back in Luke 12, Jesus tells a parable about a rich man who had a massive harvest one year. And that evening he said, man, I'm really set. I'm going to tear down these barns because they're too small. And I'm going to make bigger ones because I am set for life. And then I can just lay around and party. And he believed his riches would secure his absolute future. And God, in this parable that Jesus is telling in Luke, he calls this guy a fool. And he warns them that life is completely uncertain. And that very night, if you guys remember, the rich man, he died. And he left his heaping pile of wealth to, to be scavenged to whoever. But he didn't take it with him. And so Jesus has talked about the, or sorry, James has talked about the rich before, if you guys remember. And we're going to be getting a lot more of that today. So in verse 13, he's describing what was essentially a merchant of the day. He says, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we'll go into such and such a place and spend a year there and make a trade and make profit. So these are like the people involved in commerce. And they traveled around buying and selling and making plans of that sort was common for this class of people. This was only the profession of the rich, especially back then, especially back then. Um, A poor person, as the vast majority of people were way before the middle class, uh, they didn't have mobility, right? They were stuck to their, their house, and they're stuck to their job, and they couldn't move around and do this. So this is pointed at the rich. 
uh, the poor people didn't even have the luxury of, you know, traveling most of the time. They, uh, they didn't make these kind of long-term plans. And so the believers of this era, remember, James is talking to the believers of the dispersion, the, the brothers. And these guys were driven out of their homes. Uh, after Jesus went up to heaven, the Christians in Jerusalem started growing, as we learn in the book of Acts. And the, they were, the persecution came down pretty heavy from the Jews and Judaism, and they drove them out. And they were displaced from their houses and their jobs and were not the subject of this passage. So, verse 14 says, Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life for you are a mist that appears for a little time and vanishes? And that really reminds us of that parable in Luke. So, while being wealthy, it's important to know, is not evil in and of itself, it wasn't the poor who presumed upon their own ability to, like, secure their future. The poor can't, is not the person who's like, yeah, I'm set. The poor are more, like, more likely to worry about their needs getting met, and the poor are always more likely to be the ones who have to rely on God because they have to. They absolutely have to. Um, the danger of wealth is, of course, to lead people away from re- re- from this reliance on God, and it requires no faith at all to depend on the numbers in your bank account. And it is, it's the poor man is more likely to pray and ask God for help, and the rich man is less likely. And here in James, he tells them, your life is a vapor, a mist. Here one moment and gone the next. Here one moment, but very short term. So that's the literal truth, not only for God... But, you know, God lives outside of time, but it's also, it encompasses the whole of reality. We are here and then we're gone. And anybody who's experienced death, especially death in the family, knows it can come and take those who you love. We have zero control over this as human beings. In, in light of this, James says we need to lose, we need to get rid of the sort of pride and rely solely on God. He's talking to these, these merchant types. So look down to verse 15. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it's sin. So not only is it pride to live a life that's completely uh, rejection and independent from God, but it's the height of arrogance and evil, he's saying, to boast in your own plans, in, in your own power, and in your own means. Now, boasting has been a consistent theme in this, in this letter, in this like faith troubleshooting manual that we've been going through. It's a consistent, we've talked about it a number of times in the, in the, in the uh, chapters in the past. So, <clears throat> it's, uh, it's one of those things that if you were to open up this faith troubleshooting manual and you scan down the manual and say, boasting, boasting, boasting. It's a way to check yourself. Check the status of your faith. Am I boasting? Am I, do I have that kind of um, pride? Um, that pride comes from the worldly wisdom as we talked about last week and such boasting is evil. And James reminds us again here that it's got, it's got no place in a life of faith. Um, so back in, in verse 1, Sorry, back in chapter 1, verse 10, we, we read that the rich should boast only in his humiliation because he'll fade away like a, like a flower in the grass, right? And it says, so also will the rich fade, man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. So if we find ourselves in possession 
of something like wealth, we're instructed to boast in one thing and one thing only. The fact that wealth is fleeting and that your life in Christ, marked by humility, is not attached to your riches. And it's not attached to those worldly pursuits. In other words, riches have no bearing at the foot of the cross. Riches have no bearing in Christ. In Christ, the poor man is exalted and the rich man is is humiliated or humbled and it's level at the foot of the cross. He says, boast in that. Boast in that equalization. It will keep us from becoming proud, which is a result of worldly wisdom, as we learned in the last chapter. So verse 17 has truth that, uh, that applies to the whole of Christian life. It's knowing what's right and not doing it is sin. And in context here, we need to watch out for the uh, presumptuous above God's will and, and the, in the boasting in our ability to, to be the lords of our lives, to make our plans, to go places, to do what we want. Um, so we know what's correct and right to humbly and fully rely on God, fully rely on God for our entire life and our needs. And the knowing and not doing would be a sin in this case, and in all cases, of course. So, Lord, you know, help, help us to keep you at the center of our plans. Um, so if you haven't seen a theme here yet, it's coming. In the first part of chapter 5, he preaches to the rich unbeliever, but as, as I said before, he started back in uh, chapter 4, verse 13. He starts off with this, with this, with this less personal, more, like, more intense, come now. He says, come now. He's writing this out. He said he started that in 4.13, and he started this at the beginning of chapter 5, um, in the, which he proceeds uh, to talk about the rich. So this is where things really get heated. He says in verse 1, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and the corrosion will be evidence against you. And will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in these last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mourn, who, who mowed your field, sorry, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord, <clears throat> of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person, and he does not resist you. Come now, he starts this. This is the continuation of the warning Uh, for the corrupt wealthy in uh, chapter 4. He's not addressing the Adelphos here. He's not addressing the brothers. He says, come now, come now. As in chapter 3, he teaches that um, when he he teaches the danger of an uncontrolled tongue in in chapter 3, he launches into a warning of like this impending judgment. And it's in in chapter 3, if you guys remember, there's a whole section there where he's talking about fire, right? The tongue sets your life on fire and, you know, it sets everyone else on fire. And the next thing you know, it all comes and it all ends up in the fire and hell. And it's like the heat is coming off the page and it's kind of coming off the page here. He, this is a pretty stern um, deal at, pointed at these rich, evil people who were persecuting them. Um, They are marked by practices outside of the life of faith. So he's not He's not describing the brothers in this part. He's not, he's, he's not describing the, the Christian believers who are run out of their homes and run, run out of their jobs. Um, he's describing these, these prominent, uh, the controlling class, these prominent Jews. You know, it started with the high priest and all, the, all their buddies. 
and this is who we're talking to. So the brothers who this book is written to get to witness this, it's like hard preaching. They witness this, they're like bystanders in this section. They're, they're being allowed by James to sort of eavesdrop into this super spicy warning on the bad guys. He's saying, you guys, listen. And in addition, in verse 4, James indicates that the victims' cries to the Lord have been heard. And so in context, we, I think, this is the believers' prayers, right? The victims were, were to pray, and these rich guys were persecuting them, and now the rich guys are getting a letter from Mr. James, uh, the brother of Christ. <clears throat> and so just what he's promising is that justice against the persecutors will be delivered, and soon. So these evil rich guys are called out for, what are they called out for? Well, they're called out for withholding wages from their employees, which is, which is fraud, and living in a selfish and self-indulgent manner, and also for condemning and murdering the righteous. So it's like a, it's a window into the kinds of trials that these believers in James, remember he started at the beginning, hey, you guys are going through these trials, you need to be steadfast and take joy in your trials because it's going to build you to completion and now here we are talking to the guys causing the trials, and he lists out what these trials were. It's a window into what these believers that James was writing to. And so they were, they were, they were getting defrauded. They were not getting paid for their work. Um, they were being subject to injustice in the courts and even being at times murdered. So it's pretty serious. And if you guys remember what James said in chapter 2, he said, Are not the rich ones the ones who oppress you? And the ones who drag you into court. And all of these sins were just like clear, blatant breaking of the law of Moses that all of the Jews had. And the evidence against them was going to be their own wealth. So their own wealth was going to be standing as, as, a, as a witness against them in the day of judgment. So, given that in chapter 2 he says... Let's not be impartial. When that rich guy comes in the door, remember that the rich guy, we give him the better chair, and the, and the poor guy, we're like, hey, sit in the back, right? And so we know that these rich people were coming into their gatherings. And so imagine the day where they get this letter from James, and they're like, all right, we're going to read this in church. And the rich guy comes in the door, and they're like, hey, sir, have this seat right up front. And then they open this letter, and they proceed to call judgment on the rich guy that they are being preferential to. Imagine that meeting. That's that's my imagination going. But I, at some point, when they read these letters, and we know it from chapter two, they had these rich people coming in. It had to be a little awkward, is what I'm saying. So, um, but this is a warning given for the and the brothers get to witness this. And now we're going to move on into verse 7, which is more of an overt encouragement. So we have this, this, this encouragement that says, hey, just, um, judgment's coming on. These guys are persecuting you. And then in verse 7, he says, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. 
As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So the first thing we know, we notice in verse 7, as he switches back, he switches back to addressing the brothers. He says, be patient, therefore, brothers. Before it was, come now, come now. Now, given what we just heard, brothers, which was the promise of judgment on these guys who are persecuting them, he says, brothers, be patient. Be patient. Wait without grumbling. Have faith. Have faith that works, that functions. Believe that vindication is coming and that judgment will be dealt by the hand of God onto the people who persecute you. Christ is the holy judge and he's standing at the door. These believers are encouraged to wait in faith like what? Like the farmer who waits for his crop. That's interesting. So a farmer doesn't wait for nothing. He plants his seeds and he waits because he knows. He waits in faith because he knows the soil, the rain, and the sun are going to produce something good. They're going to they're produce the fruit of the earth, good crops. By implication, this coming judgment is something good to wait for. This coming judgment that they're supposed to wait patiently for, like the farmer who waits for a good crop, is something good to wait for. So, because, here's why, injustice will be made right. And the wicked will see justice. They will get what's coming. Uh, We read uh, uh, Psalm 73. It was a really good picture of that. And he gives them some examples here. He's like, the faithful um, are compared to Job and the prophets of old who waited patiently in the midst of suffering. Job and the prophets, they waited in faith for God's plan, for God's will to be completed. And James couldn't have picked better examples. And it's especially pertinent here because he includes the prophets because Israel was about to come under final judgment for the mistreatment of the prophets and of God's righteous followers. And just as a, as a reference, back in Matthew 23, Jesus promised the same judgment for the persecution uh, of the righteous. Israel's persecution of the righteous uh, all the, going all the way back to Abel. He says in Matthew 23, Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom will kill, you will kill and crucify, and some who you will flog in the synagogue and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all of the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of innocent Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who you murdered. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. The judgment that Jesus referred to some 15, 20 years earlier was promised to come in this generation. And he calls it at hand. And James says the judge is at the door. And he he clearly remembered the words of Christ and prophetically was encouraging the brothers by saying, I know this is hard. Have faith. God is going to make things right. All they had to do is wait in faith like a farmer waits for his good crops to come out of the ground. We see that the Lord is faithful, and he will always judge the wicked in due time. And because of this truth, we can hold fast to the faith that by being patient in suffering, God, who is just, 
who is always fully just, will bring justice in his time. So, even today, we can wait and rest in the fact that Jesus, who is the perfect judge, will come again, and he will make things right. Without a genuine working faith, we won't be able to have patience like this. We won't be able to have this kind of a hope. Um, We would live a depressed, despairing, and like hopeless manner without faith in Christ. Hebrews 11.1 says, now faith is what? Faith is the confidence in what we hope for and the assurance about what we do not see. Now, we don't have it as bad as they did, but they were instructed, they're instructed to wait patiently for judgment, for justice to be done. And this is a way that your faith can work, by allowing you to wait in this manner. Verse 12, going back to the text, But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth, or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes, and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. So in light of judgment that is coming, the brothers, the Adelphos here, were instructed, were instructed not to swear oaths by any created thing, which if you were to swear your oath on, a, you know, on the heaven or by earth or by grandma's grave or whatever, you're putting a false power, you're putting something that doesn't belong onto this, it's, it's idolatry. It's by saying, by the power of, the, of heaven or by earth or by this thing, I am making this statement and your word isn't good enough. And he's saying, don't do that. It's idolatry. And he says, don't do that so that you won't face condemnation in this upcoming judgment. Um, it demonstrates, to do something like that demonstrates a, a lack of faith in God. These people would swear on the earth or, or by heaven or by the temple or by the gold in the temple. Like they were getting into this, these little tiny details. And it's like, that's not, that's not a life of faith. That's not faith that works. Um, that demonstrates a lack of faith or weak faith. And so he moves on to instruct them in how to live with a working faith and how to live in the meantime. And I really like this part. In verse 13, he says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. If anyone is suffering, let him pray. If anyone is cheerful, let him sing praise. So, in our life of faith, where we believe in the saving work of Christ, this faith troubleshooting manual has some clear action items for us. First, pray. Pray first. Pray often. Especially when suffering is affecting us. Especially when suffering is happening. Pray. As it was for the brothers of this time, when he's writing to them, we must never stop praying in the midst of our suffering. But also, in times of cheer, in times of cheer, we're to sing. We're to sing praise to the Lord and exalt Him in song. Exalt the Lord because he, he is worthy. So, singing praise to the Lord and exalting Him is praying. It is praying. So, I like the way the old King James says it. It says, is anyone merry? Is anyone merry? Let him sing psalms. Let him sing psalms. You can always pray the Lord with these, with these quiet words, with, with a low voice and with closed eyes and bowed head. And that's like the way that we in this culture think of as prayer. Oh, prayer is this, this set of movements that I make with my body, and it's, it's my lowered voice, and it's me, it's me talking to somebody who's, you know. But prayer is also worship. Prayer is also praise. And that's when things really get 
exciting. You can speak softly and pray, and there's a place for that. But there's also a place for music. Like when you add rhythm and tone, and, and it's beautiful. And we were ushered into the presence of God with praise. And he says, if you're cheerful, let him sing praise. If you're suffering, pray. If you're cheerful, sing praise. Singing lifts the heart even further, and it glorifies God to a wider audience. It's, it's a faith-building, faith-strengthening exercise. And that's why we do it together. It glorifies the Lord and builds our faith. And I'm really thankful for the team who leads us in this. Moving on to verse 14 in the text. If anyone, is anyone among you sick, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. So his, his further instruction is, if anyone was sick, they should call on the elders of the church and gather them as a group and have them anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord and pray for them. And this passage brings up a major question. If you're a thinking person, you have to go, now wait a minute. This passage brings up that kind of a question because we can't skip over it because it's, it's, the fact is we don't typically see healings like this seems to be describing, right? It's, it seems really black and white, and we have to go, now what's he saying? But it's important to note that God working through the Holy Spirit can do anything he wants according to the will and according to his purposes and plans. And the Holy Spirit is in all of us. He comforts us and he works in our lives in many ways. So we have to keep in mind the context of this book. This letter is to these early believers, these early Jews, these Christian Jews who were suffering hardships and therefore they had weak faith and were committing the sins that accompany weak faith. And we've been learning about these as we go through James. He's been addressing them one by one. These are the sins that come from a faith that's feeble or weak. And the Greek word used here for sick is also the word used for feeble, weak, or, or powerless. It's that whole, and sick, and physically sick, but it's that whole concept but in that one word. And it could be taken to be, to be speaking to their general state uh, of sanctification, right? Their state of, uh, in the light of their weak faith, their sinning, and in light of that, and the whole book being on the theme of faith, with the immediate context right after being about the forgiveness of sin, which comes from a weak or a sick faith, the most plain and contextual interpretation of this is that it refers to a weakness in faith. No place in the Scripture does it, does it make a promise that we will get physical healing on the earth. And historically, the church understand this, understands it both from experience and from the rest of the Word of God in context. But what this thing does say is that we should ask for healing. If we're sick, you get those elders and you have them pray for you. doesn't matter if this is an emotional sickness, a physical sickness, a spiritual sickness, or, or like even just like weak faith. Like I'm having a hard time believing this stuff. Like I, I'm, I'm suffering from a weak faith. I've got sin in my life that comes from that. I'm reading the Faith Troubleshooting Manual, the book of James, and I'm going down the line, troubleshoot. Looks like I have a weak faith. And that's what this book is for. And he's saying, you should ask for healing. 
you should ask. And it's important that we obey this command. And so it doesn't matter how God heals it. He will heal it in the way he wants to heal it, whether it be mentally, physically, even a boost of faith, right, which Paul says comes from hearing of the word. He is able to do it. And it could be miraculous or it could be gradual, but God has the power. But it's important to note, God is not a vending machine, and there's no certain sequence of coins that we can put in to God to get Him to do some kind of a thing for us. It doesn't work that way. God is the creator of the universe, and He has a will. And the, the more we are sanctified in our lives, the more we become in tune to His will, and then your, your requests to God become requests in His will. So that's what that's about. There's a, um, a strengthening healing power in prayer. So <clears throat> in looking at the original audience of this text, right, they're being defeated, they're being persecuted, we get this clear picture that they did need this healing. They were suffering from a weak faith, clearly, and that's what this, this whole book is about. And he gives us this simple charge. It's sensible. Call for the elders and I'm coming to pray. That's what you should do. We shouldn't skip over it. Verse 16, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man has great power as it's working. Verse 17, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours and he prayed fervently that it might not rain and for three years and six months it didn't rain upon the earth. Therefore, then, then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. And so, wrapping up here, James, he restates the call for believers who have faith in Jesus to show it by living in a properly ordered community, a Christian community. He says, one another. When a member of the body calls for the elders to pray, there will be as much concern and attention given to the righteousness and the forgiveness of sins as any other kind of ailment. It's important. And at that time, it it would be a time for confession and repentance. What really destroys us is sin. It destroys us. And this is found in this passage. Um, So there's a general call to righteousness in the life of faith. And it's found in this mutual one another, this mutual fervent prayer um, and confessing of sins and repentance. And this is the way to stay in the light. This is the way to stay in the light and to remain in the faith. There's a great strength in being in a body, being in the body of Christ where we're praying for each other and building each other up and staying in the light, confessing our sins, receiving forgiveness from the Lord. We want to do this. We want to do this for each other. Um, <clears throat> so, call the elders. Have them pray for you. If you're sick in your body or in your soul. And don't forget to pray for one another, one another, fervently, as Elijah did. It's good. My brothers, verse 19. If anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Will cover a multitude of sins. And so finally, James, he's wrapping this up. He calls the believers 
to bring back people in the faith when they wander out. To rescue a wandering, Christ, a wandering Christian is to pull him back to a state where his faith can work. This, into this life of faith where it can function. What he believes will be strengthened and it will come out in what he does. And he says, this will cover a multitude of sins. That's good news. That's good news. This is why we pull people back. Because we all have moments of weak faith. And we got to look out for each other, brothers and sisters. This is why we're a family. And we pull back. If I have a friend who's, whose faith is clear, clear, clearly weak, I will be preaching the word to him. I will give him passages because um, you get faith by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And I want his sins to be covered because I love him. This is an example of that. And it's um, by chance. He ends with this. But he ends with this because that's what he's doing. That's the whole purpose of this whole book of James. is to do exactly what he just said. To call the wandering Christian. To call the guy whose faith is getting weak. To call the girl whose faith is getting weak. And pull him back and cover their multitude of sins. Um, he starts in the, in the beginning of the book to do a little recap to close. He encourages us to remain in faith despite trials. And you guys remember why. Because he promises completion and strengthening if we hang on. He instructs us to ask God for wisdom. We're encouraged to live in righteousness as those under the law of liberty, if you guys remember that. And that's Christ's law where there's mercy. Where there's mercy. We're given an effective faith troubleshooting manual for advanced warning of dead or weak faith. By paying attention, we can catch this stuff before it gets really bad. Um, and, and there might be, and, and the, uh, the symptoms of that are like partiality, right? Um, partiality, sinning through boasting, there's a lot about boasting, uncontrolled speech, and obviously being taken by friendship to the world, which causes infighting, as we learn in chapter 4. And then back in chapter 5, he ends with this promise to persecute, sorry, to Bring justice to the persecutors. Bring justice to those who are evil. But he encourages and strengthens the brothers. He encourages and strengthens the, perse- the persecuted, the people who this book is to. Here's our application from the whole book. Number one, you need to read this book of James for the rest of your life. Read this book of James for the rest of your life. How can you not read this book and have your faith strengthened? That's what this book is for. That's the reason it was written. It's foundational to the life of faith. And what I'm saying is read the Bible every year. A couple chapters a day. Get on that plan and stay with it. And if you miss, get back on it. It's that simple. His holy words, the words that God left for us on earth, change us. They change our hearts. And I, as Philippians 1, uh, 6 says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So we need to strengthen our faith so that we can remain in our faith. Number two, take joy in trials. Rob gave a, a great sermon at the beginning of the series about that from chapter 1. <clears throat> Just like what, when, when a muscle is worked under strain, it gets stronger. He uses hardships, trials, and, a tr- and troubles to build up 
your faith so your faith can work, just like your muscles can work. And these trials are what do it. So we have to remember that and take joy in them and don't lose hope. We can't lose hope because things are hard. Does my muscle lose hope when I'm swinging a sledgehammer? It may be if I, you know, put my ear real close. Uh, no, it gets stronger. It gets stronger. And this is what we're called to do. God has chosen us and he makes us stronger in the faith. He moves us towards completion during our lives. Um, in verse one, or sorry, chapter 1, verses 2 to 4, it says, Count all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you, be made, that you may be made perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That's from chapter 1 of, of the book of the James. That you may be made perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That's good news. So, as I said in point one, read this, read this, the Bible all the time. Read it every year. Go through your plan. Read the book of James at least once a year. But remember, we could hear and read, but we cannot do. We cannot follow up with action. And he says that we are deceived when we do that. Don't neglect the doing. So we have this amazing gift from the Holy Spirit, the, the Word of God Himself, the God of the universe, left this for us. But we have to act on it. Just like when you listen to uh, Dave Ramsey on the radio and he says, here's how to get out of debt, and you don't do the things, it does nothing. It does nothing. We, you have to do the things in James to have strong faith, faith that can function, faith that works. Um, verse 1 or chapter 1, verse 22 says, But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Number four, stay humble before the Lord. He talks a lot about humility and pride in this book. <clears throat> stay humble before the Lord. So in our times of weak faith, we will need the Lord's mercy. Guaranteed. We will need His mercy and forgiveness. And if we humble ourselves, we will have Him receive us. We will have him draw near to us, <clears throat> and we will get what we need to be strengthened in our faith. So having a demeanor of the opposite of humility, which is pride, on the other hand, will result in God keeping us at arm's length, because this is what it says in chapter 4, verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. He will lift you up. Finally, stay in fellowship and pray. As he closes this in the end of chapter 5, he's saying, here's how to live in the meantime while we're waiting for justice to be done. Stay in fellowship and pray. The life of faith is not the life of a loner. It's not the life of a lone Christian. It's impossible and it can't be done. So we're part of the body of Christ. We're part of the body of Christ and we have to remain in the body to stay alive. So get together. Pray for the sick. Pray for those with weak faith. Pray for those whose faith isn't coming out in actions, whose faith is like stopped working, stopped producing. Pray for those. Pull back those who wander because we can save a multitude of sins in that manner. Um, confess your sins and forgive each other. This is the life of the body of Christ. Verse 16 says, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another 
that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. Has great power as it's working. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this book. It's been a joy to go through it. And we thank you that you cared enough about us and about our faith, Lord, to give us this. To give us this book of James, this faith troubleshooting manual. And we are grateful. Help us to be doers of the word, not just hearers. Help us to read this and remember it and apply it. We want to have faith that works. Lord, we want to have faith that is physically expressed in good actions. We want to believe to the point to where we have to act on our beliefs. And so I ask that for everyone in this room, I pray that you would give us, give everyone in this room a love for your word. Give everyone in this room a desire to read and stay in your word, Lord, to stay in your body, to stay in fellowship with believers. Grant us the gift of repentance and allow us to forgive when necessary. We thank you so much. In your name we pray, amen.